Let me tell you a story. Tell you a little story about a, a guy with a C minus average. <laughs> who was a failure in business. And he was just, just farting around down in Texas. <laughs> Partying, drinking, doing blow. <laughs> you know what happened to that guy? No, what? He went to jail because he's poor and Mexican. <laughs> But there was another guy doing the same stuff. But his dad was in charge of the CIA, then vice president, and then president. You know what happened to him? I think I do. He became president. I'm talking about me. Do you think I could be president someday? Well, you never know. Maybe one day you'll, you'll sit here and you'll, you'll say, in vivo deste, Nueva York. El sábado en la noche. It's Saturday Night Live! Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week we'll be taking a look back at SNL's May 5th, 2001 episode from its 26th season with host Pierce Brosnan and musical guest Destiny's Child. I'm John Murray and I'm joined this week by improv and sketch impresario Dave Buckman. Dave has studied, directed, performed, and taught in many of the nation's premier sketch comedy haunts, including Chicago's Second City, I.O. and Annoyance Theatres, and is currently running Austin's Cold Town Theatre, Sketchfest, and the Out of Bounds Comedy Festival. You can connect with Dave on Twitter, at Dave Buckman. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can do so at snlafterparty.fm. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever app you prefer to listen on. Your subscription helps us grow, and your support is greatly appreciated. All right, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Brosnan. Oh, welcome back, Dave Buckman. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, uh, it was a tragedy that uh, we had you on for the Donald Glover episode, as some of our listeners might know. But because of technical issues, we had to scrap that. And so Steve and I regrouped and uh, got that one out. But unfortunately, without your uh, informed and astute opinions. All that work down the drain, all my notes. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great cast. Um we went for about two hours. You had lots of fabulous insights. We talked a little bit about your path to comedy and just sort of what you have cooking in Austin. It was, it was probably set up to be one of our better casts of the season. And it's a <laughs> shame that it'll never see the light of day. Story of my life, John. Yes. Yes. But we had to have you back up. Um, uh-huh. We're going to talk vintage SNL tonight and uh, hopefully have a little bit of fun and get the audience acquainted with you. And then maybe if we're able to talk more in the future, we can, uh, Uh, maybe delve a little bit deeper into your background, what you did up in Chicago with second city and some of the people that we're actually going to be talking about in tonight's episode, you've got uh, plenty of uh, history to regale us with, but we're going to save that for a future cast. And tonight we are going to be talking about the Pierce Brosnan episode from, I believe it was season 26 with destiny's child as the musical guest. Uh, Why did you pick this episode? Why did I pick this episode? Uh, So many reasons. I think the main reason I love this episode is because uh, when I was in Amsterdam, when this aired, I was living in a house with, uh, in Amstelveen, about a city right outside of Amsterdam, mm-hmm. uh, in a house with Jordan Peele, <laughs> uh, Joe Kelly, who wrote for Silent Live for a couple seasons and wrote for How I Met Your Wife. He's the executive producer of Detroiters now. Right. And then Randall Haar, uh, who's an actor at Second City, Chicago now. 
the four of us were living in this house together. And Joe Kelly's mom every week would send us a VHS. We had an American <laughs> VHS uh, player uh, with uh, that week's Saturday Night Live, that week's Simpsons, and that week's Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> All the required viewing for the week. <laughs> it was an easy weekend taping. She put it in the mail on Monday. We'd right. have it by the weekend. Yep. And then we'd have last week's Saturday Night Live before the next one aired. Which was fun for us, you know, because we're missing it. We're all addicted to that show. Right. So uh, this is by far, I think, our favorite one from that run, mm-hmm. from that season when we were watching it. Because uh, we all, you know, these were people, we all kind of knew Horatio. We kind of knew who Tina was. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dratch, of course, as well. Uh, so it was like the start of people we knew getting on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And then killing it. And it was just, there were so many sketches. This has my favorite sketch, I think, of all time. Excellent. I think it's going to be fun because this is actually a fantastic episode that I hadn't watched for at least a decade, if not uh, more. So for sure, this was a, a real treat to be able to jump back to this era, <laughs> which uh, for me personally, it was an era that I watched, you know, as it was coming out uh, originally. So this, this is definitely an era of SNL that I identify with, but uh, yeah, I hadn't seen this one in a long time and it's charming. There's a lot of good stuff in here. So I'm excited to see what you have to say about it. It's an all-star cast. It really is, yeah. Yeah, it's from and it's pre nine eleven. It's just it's May of two thousand one, so they are blissfully unaware of <laughs> yes uh, what's to come, how the world's about to change, and the humor is dark <laughs> and edgy and very uh, uh, racist and homophobic, yes. uh, and uh, just things that would would not. And you know, Tina Fey's the head writer, and it's still pretty yeah. racisty <laughs> yeah. and homophobic. It's amazing what a 180 copy has taken since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was definitely a different era. You, you could feel it, especially in weekend update where yes. the whole tone of it is super light. Like they had nothing yes. to really be riled up about. So it, it's right. just really fun fair. Um, yeah. And, and nobody was sweating it. They could still get away <laughs> with a little bit of risque content and it was just a different world and a different tone. So to uh, see that juxtaposed with the insanity of our modern era, it makes yeah. it even more interesting to rewatch. So uh, I'm excited. But before we jump in, I want to talk a little bit about what you've got cooking out in Austin because sure. uh, you've, you've got a few things that I think our listeners should uh, know about. So run with that. Well, I am the executive producer of Cold Town Theater uh, in Austin, Texas. We do shows seven nights a week, improv, sketch, and comedy. Uh, and we teach classes in improv and sketch as well um, to hundreds of students. Um, Austin's a great town. There's like five improv theaters here and sketch and comedy houses. Even more if you count all the stand-up clubs, too. And there's open mics all over the city. So it's a really an amazing live comedy town. Mm-hmm. Really under uh, appreciated, I think, by the coasts, uh, by how deep our bench is here. Uh, and on top of that, I'm and the senior producer for the Out of Bounds Comedy Festival coming up and Labor Day weekend. Great. So that's right around the corner. So what are the exact dates that that runs? August 28th through September 3rd, Labor Day night. Uh, seven days, seven stages, about... Uh, I want to say three to 400 performers from all over the globe. We've got a uh, comedy from China this year. Mm-hmm. That's our international act. Uh, we've got Gina Yeshere from the daily show, Edie Patterson from vice principals, Jim Rash from community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Ian Abramson is an amazing standup. We've got gay co from Chicago and kids these days, which is a sketch trip made up of uh, uh, writers in New York from Fallon and Samantha B and Colbert all coming together for a sketch show. So it's going to be plus literally uh, hundreds of other uh, amateur and rising comedians that you've mm-hmm. never heard of that are doing some of the edgiest and most interesting stand-up improv and sketch out there. 
Excellent. Now, this is in Austin, right? This is in Austin uh, at Cold Town Theater, Hideout Theater, Fallout Theater, Institution Theater, uh, Velveeta Room, and the Spider House. Excellent. So if people want to make it down for that, where should they be looking online? Outofboundscomedy.com. Badges are on sale. Individual tickets are on sale. It's going to be a hot time. And lots of after parties. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, you ready to talk a little SNL? Yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. For our cold open, President George W. Bush discusses the evils of underage drinking with his melodramaculous daughter, Jenna. We get a special, yes, we get a special appearance from Julia Stiles. Uh, yeah, I actually live just up the hill from the restaurant where Jenna Bush was <laughs> busted. Okay. It's a place called Chewy's on Barton Springs mm-hmm. Road, and I drive by it. It's a great like, place to point out. Uh, I like the sketch. Again, this is like seeing pre-9-11 George Bush, and right. all we really had to go on him was that he was kind of a bro-y doof. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the level of where we understood his, right. his uh, what comedy about Bush ones at that point. Yep, a simpler time for sure. And this is definitely quintessential viewing because obviously, you know, Will Ferrell made that character so iconic uh, that this is the type of material that got it there. This is a very well-defined portrait of their take on Bush pre-9-11 and uh, a lot of fun. It's nice to have a lighthearted cold open that just really hits like where you're getting belly laughs from the audience, not just like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I heard that news item as well. Kind of tepid <laughs> uh, responses. If you think about it, you know, he's, he'd been doing that impression for about a year at that point. Cause they right. the primaries and all that stuff. Right. Um, so he's got a year into that impression and then put nine 11 on top of that. You got like context on top of context. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it helps the comedy. That's why it got so good so quickly. Because he already had, he already knew this character, and he'd taken different, put that character in different context in 9-11. That's why the character was so rock solid after yeah. 9-11. Yeah, you get the portrait, and then you get the storyline to really take yeah. it into interesting places. Uh, it was a, a unique political era for SNL, so it is fun to see the calm before the storm, where everything could just still be lighthearted and fun, and to know yeah. kind of, you know, that they have to switch tones a little bit later this year, or actually, this would be the beginning of the next season, they would have had yeah. to really kind of reevaluate their take on on Bush, uh, but for what this was, I thought it played really well, it was a lot of fun, and Julia Stiles, she, you know, served her purpose well, too. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, they go from this kind of zany energy, mm-hmm. their next show after the summer is Reese Witherspoon, and Rudy Giuliani opening the season. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Huge tone shift coming. Yep. Yeah. So this is, this is definitely kind of a a road marker of. Yeah, exactly. uh, Yeah. A very stark change in SNL that we're seeing the very Mm -hmm. tail end of. Um, Yeah. Okay. So enough on the cold open. Let's talk monologue. Sure. Pierce Brosnan endures a barrage of insults from Daryl Hammond's classic Sean Connery. I loved it. I loved uh, uh, them trading stories or fables, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very funny way to take it, that kind of back and forth. Uh, you notice the credits said there's a cartoon by Robert Smigel that we never got. Yeah, that's a cut for time piece. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what that was. Oh, I, I actually know. You know what? Let's Which one? let's give him a little bit of insight. Um, it was a TV Funhouse Survivor. Um, but I don't think they ever reran it later. So unless that rings a bell to you, I think that one may have never seen the light of day. Um, No. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine them doing the audio from survivor 
and putting like political right, people. Right, yeah, the, the bad cartoon sync-ups. Right, exactly. Could be, could be. I, it doesn't ring a bell to me, so I don't think it was repurposed. Yeah. And maybe that's just because it didn't play, right? Like they showed it at dress yeah. and maybe it just didn't really get any laughs, so they shelved it. Oh, why put it in the credits? Why put it in the credits? Uh, maybe it was in the rundown. You know, they didn't know how much time they were going to have and those are only, a, you well, know. They didn't mention the Adam McKay digital short, so maybe they said, we don't have time, let's just do this Adam McKay thing we got. Yeah, it, it could be. Like the the TV funhouse ones are usually only a couple minutes tops. Yeah, for sure. So often they can be slotted in if they're coming up short before a commercial break. But if something runs long, then that's the obvious trim, right? A two minute trim is right. better than like a four minute sketch trim. So that's right. It's probably just something as simple as that. They, they just ran out of time and uh, who knows if anyone actually in our audience knows what that <laughs> sketch was all about. Uh, I'd love to get some insight, but I don't have anything else to offer. <laughs> um, my take on the cold open is pretty straightforward. Daryl Hammond, Sean Connery is another iconic character from the era. So it seems obvious that they'd want to pull him in. This is yeah. easy, uh, but instant laughs. So it's, it's all good. The one thing that they can both agree on is that Timothy Dalton needs to get his butt kicked. That's just you know <laughs> fun little way to bring it to a head. So this was a win. It's a, such a good impression. It's so good. <laughs> it's such a good impression. It's so silly and fun. This monologue also has my, one of my favorite comedy bits where someone in earnest starts to do a musical number. And you really think that's where the sketch is going to go? And the other person's like, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, yeah. It just shuts down immediately. <laughs> right. It makes me laugh every time anybody does that. That was already an SNL trope even back then. It gets me every time. Cool. Moving on. We get a pre-tape. When taken regularly, Homicil decreases parental anxiety. A classic pre-tape commercial. <laughs> I mean, this, this is, I hope whoever wrote this knows this is probably one of the best commercials ever that they've done. Okay. I think it's so far ahead of its time. Really calling out even the notion of gender fluid kids, which back then, you know, it's always been a thing, but mm. no one, you know, would put that on national television. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, and I remember being so like hit by this when it originally aired, like, oh my God, that's such a brilliant concept because it's not about them. It is about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's basically the the tagline at the end there is they make right. the, the point crystal clear because it's your problem, not theirs. So it seems like they wanted that message to cut through even if that wasn't the funniest tagline that they could throw at the end of it they really wanted to make sure that hit home and so yeah there's there's some boldness there i can give it that for sure yeah that little kid who comes up behind chasing word and goes who wants creme brulee <laughs> right yeah and he just slinks down in his chair pops a couple pills and just tries to forget uh yeah this was very <laughs> well realized it's nice that the pre-tape uh, offers you an opportunity to like to check in on so many people in quick succession where yeah. a, a live sketch, they maybe couldn't have jammed it with as many good characters. You get, you know, Will Ferrell's little like brain dead <laughs> thumbs up after, you know, he's completely right. melted on these pills. All of that kind of stuff works a lot better in pre-tape. Um, so I feel like this, this was very well realized and, and it, yeah. it, it was smart. It was sharp. And as a pre-tape, it really flowed and worked. So big win for me. Yeah, me too. Cool. Moving on. We get a live sketch MTV special presentation of just fun and with Gemini's twin. Yeah. And we get our special appearance from destiny's child. What do you make of Gemini's twins? New video woman made man, woman made man. <laughs> the video itself is okay. I think the live part of the sketch is what really sells it for me. Right. Um, uh, I do enjoy watching Maya and Anna Gasteyer collaborate in this way together. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't know if you read, bossy pants tina talks about anna gasteyer getting very uh having a lot of job insecurity when maya rudolph came on because uh i don't believe that uh that 
singing was her thing and that Maya oh. was going to be taking that over. Okay. Yeah. And it's amazing to kind of see how, when you have that situation and having those people collaborate with each other, you have something amazing like Gemini's twin right. develop instead of like this, right. Instead of creating this rivalry, they created like a collaboration, which is probably how that new dawn of collaboration at Science live. It went from very like snipey to collaborating. Yeah. A little more inclusive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't have much thought on that because I wasn't thinking in terms of, uh, <laughs> you know, like uh, the, the, the back, ground politics of it all. I just think that this is kind of a product of its era. I think if you grew up around that time, which I did to see sort of the Zenith of destiny's child, where this is a pitch perfect representation of what you would see on MTV. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a comment on just the the tone of the era and how pop music was being presented. So there is something smart about it all, but overall it is just the, the joy of everybody kind of having fun in this delicious mess of you've got Fabio mashed up with destiny's (laughs) child mashed up with the destiny's child parody. Uh, yeah, it's just all of that mashed together. That is right for comedy. So I I thought it was pretty good. Not brilliant. I don't think there was anything like super remarkable in the writing here, but it was still charming to watch. So fun. I kept thinking about those moments when you see uh, like Justin Timberlake in an in in sync in a sketch, right? But way before he became Justin Timberlake, okay. And it's look at them and say, does he know he's going to be a fight in the Five Timers Club at this point? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Does he right. have any concept how he can have his own best of DVD if he need if they wanted to make one? Right? You know what I mean? Exactly. But like seeing Beyonce before she's just like Beyonce, yeah, and how much star power she has and how much. I mean, her voice is shot in the sketch and somehow when she <laughs> sings, even in the sketch, it's amazing. Right. She just brings it even compared to Kelly and Michelle. You know what I mean, she's just like, she's radiating. Right. Yeah. We have the advantage of time to be able to look back <laughs> and, and see how all this plays out for them. So yeah, it is kind of fun to see them kind of uh, in their more infant stages of their career and knowing, you know, where that trajectory is going to take them. Yeah, this was fun. This just brought me back to being probably, you know, 19 or 20 when this dropped <laughs> originally and just kind of where I was at in my headspace at the time. And it just pulls me back to when destiny's child was all over the radio. And when that just, you know, that was definitely my era. So uh, this, this just played on a few different buttons, nostalgia and just the, yeah, the, the fun of what MTV was back then. Yeah. I love that moment at the very end. We're like, are we doing this? Yeah. Are we doing this? No. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing that. Like, uh, rabbit season, duck season thing with each yep, other yep, yep. while they're singing, while they're uh, harmonizing. That's not an easy comedy thing to do. Yep. All five of them nail it. It was yep. really impressive. Yeah. A lot of fun. Yeah. Moving on. We get another live sketch. The host of the weakest link viciously insults her contestants and has an emotional breakthrough. Uh, it was great. I love this sketch. She calls them half wits. I don't know. That might be a nod out to SCTV. Yeah, it could be. Boom Chicago at the time where I was, we also had a weakest link sketch. Okay. Uh, at that same time, that killed. I think ours was better though. <laughs> right. You're a little biased, but okay. <laughs> it was great. I love these kind of sketches where it's just a random succession of characters and not necessarily the ones like Family Feud, where you're just looking at like different celebrity impressions. These are just people, random normals mm-hmm. that like a wide variety of the cast gets to play. It's just a lot of actual people. Okay. So, you know what I mean? Just like, you know, just characters. Yeah. So I love those kind of sketches. It is interesting that they took the time to give each character some sort of quirky trait for them mm-hmm. to draw on and, and hopefully find a little bit of humor in. Um, a lesser sketch might not have bothered with that because really their role is just to accept the 
the funny barbs that the weakest link host is throwing at them. So they don't have to really be funny, but you watch what Horatio is doing or you watch what my Rudolph's doing. Like she's yes. kind of that um, sort of like that suburban mom who gets into like a multi-level marketing scheme or something like that. And you can just, you can see a sense of the character coming through in a, in a few of these uh, contestants. It's all off of their occupation. Exactly. Everybody's like really proud of their occupation, super proud. And so as like lame as it sounds to us, they're like right. a rock star in each of their worlds. Yes. And that's, I think that's what sells it for me. Exactly. This is the point of pride that they told the show. This is the that's, bio that yeah. they offered up because they feel that that's what defines them. So uh, as simple and quick as all that moves, there is definitely something there. There is a game of here's your profession. What can you do with it? You know, you've got literally one line to try and bring this character to life. What can you do with it? So I do appreciate that all the players really kind of stepped up for that. I love in, in that world is when, um, when Horatio does a great one of those, he goes, Hey, Hey, come on. Right. Yeah. Those are so hard to do. Yeah. Like just that kind of like, just like you pack so much into that. Hey, Hey, come on. He's, he's so good at those. Hey, Hey, come on. Yeah. He has a few moments in this episode where his choices really elevate a sketch in a surprising way that you aren't, you don't see coming. So yeah, I respected it here where he kind of like takes a step back and you can see he's a little wounded by it, but he still wants to sort of like, you know, hold his chin up. There, there's, yeah. some, there's something there that was really, really fun to watch. So the, this sketch, uh, it came out swinging. Like it was really fun from the get go. But I think what really put it over the top was obviously this flashback moment where oh. it's revealed that the host of the weakest link was actually the weakest link in her family. And that's this, you know, deep trauma <laughs> that has caused her to be so caustic with the contestants. What a brilliant little turn for the sketch. So I, I loved it. I thought that was great. That's so interesting. I thought the exact opposite. I think that's where the scene lost its verb. Really? Yeah. If you notice halfway through her asking the questions, she stops asking an actual trivia question and just starts insulting them. Right. And then the game kind of stops and then they have to kind of come up with this ending, which is not where these sketches headed in the first place. Sure. So for me, I would have loved it if it was just uh, ask a trivia question. They answer it. She uses that ag- their answer against them. Okay. They get insulted and they did nothing but that. I think that could have been a recurring sketch for a couple seasons, but because they stopped the game, it's a one-off. Okay. All right. Well, I can respect that, right? Like you're the comedy pro. I am certainly not going <laughs> to disregard that as a, a valid viewpoint, but I don't think that's where they were coming from with the sketch. I don't yeah. think they were setting it up as a game. I think that was purely a vehicle to get to the reveal. I think that the pitch Maybe. for this was let's get to the heart of why this lady is so vicious. I think that was what was put forward and uh-huh. they just needed the setup of the show to demonstrate how vicious she was to get to the reveal. That's completely fair too. I could see that as yeah. well. I, but I enjoyed the first part of the sketch more than I enjoyed the payoff. Sure. The payoff didn't make me laugh as hard as the back and forth between the contestants and the interestingness of the contestants. Right. They could have had like nonstop for, I would love to see this sketch come back and just really enjoy them. Each cast member just sinking themselves into a random made up person and a random made up character. I really enjoyed that part of the sketch more than I enjoyed delving into Ann Robinson's childhood. See now that that's kind of interesting because I think what happened was they struck on gold and maybe didn't even realize what they had. That's right? exactly right. So that that's kind of cool that maybe there was a missed opportunity there. But now if they went back and didn't have the same structure, if they went back and just purely made it, you know, this round table roast kind of game. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it would hold up now that we've already kind of like had that punchline reveal. So I understand why we didn't see it again, but you know, you're, you're right. And maybe, um, uh, 
with a little bit more time and preparation, someone would have looked at this and said, this has legs. Maybe we don't want to, you know, paint ourselves in a corner on this one. But regardless, whether you like the first half and I like the second half, I had a lot of fun with this. So this was a win for me either way. Me too. And I want to give props to the child actor at the end that just sold the hell out of that, you know, (laughs) very rarely you get good. And there's a lot of good child actors in this, in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. But this, this one really was on point and uh, I was surprised because you needed that, right. It could have all fell flat if you were pulled out of the moment because the child actor was, you know, off in space or just, you know, wasn't able to deliver the line. Um, So yeah, it really, really fired in that way. So I was happy with this. I was happy with what we got. Cool. Moving on. We got another live sketch. The snooty employees of Jeffries can't tolerate their unfashionable clientele. Yes. Uh, I think we've seen a few of these over the the years. Not only a couple of Jeffries, but also this is just a classic Jimmy Fallon wacky character embodied in a wacky store sketch. Yeah. What'd you make of this? Was this a win? Uh, this was a win purely because of Horatio. Okay. <laughs> Horatio saves this, turns this from a C minus sketch into a B plus single-handedly. <laughs> yes. And it's really sh- shame because that is to me, I got to see Horatio do a lot of live shows at second city when I was there in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He was one of my favorites. Um, and I don't think the SNL ever really captured what Horatio is capable of okay. ever. And this comes closest. This episode actually comes closest. That moment especially is he is so adept at, and was so adept and is so adept at taking the moment for himself and really milking every last <laughs> thing of it and then giving the focus back to you without ever you having to lose your verve or sure. He's not going to step on your line. He's not going to step on your cue, but he's going to take, he's going to milk every single moment that he gets. And this is where he kind of sees like this sketch is tanking. I'm going to save this sketch. <laughs> and he's just kind of like, doesn't screw with the sketch at all, but certainly like builds the yeah. energy in the room single-handedly. Yep. Yeah. It was so unexpected when he came out because the parade of characters up to that point were just essentially punching bags again. And Parnell had lost his voice for some reason. Catan was underselling it. Yeah. Uh, And Horatio just comes out and just nails it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how much of that was on the page and how much of that was just performance that he felt in the moment. He just really had to go big with, but whatever it was that that was the moment of the sketch that makes it a win because otherwise it's pretty run of the mill fair. Um, But yeah. I couldn't help but grin when, <laughs> when, when he amped up there and, and tried to like puff up and put them in their place, but he really doesn't have the goods. You know, he can't really yeah. keep up with how snooty they are. And the target, the target. Thing yeah. Is- yeah. He, but he's, he's taking these very like mundane fashion, yes. uh, cred that he has and trying to sell it like it's bigger than it is. And that just worked yeah. really well. What? This is genuine members. only. <laughs> oh, he's so Oh my God. That, that just reminded me of how, how good he was even in Chicago when he was doing that kind of stuff. He, you know, he had a monologue to do every night. I'd go and watch him, but it was different every single night Right, and it killed every single night. And he's, yeah, he's great. Funny dude. Yeah. Everything yeah. surrounding that was very take it or leave it for me. I didn't even really get much out of the ending where Will Ferrell shows up to sort of put a button on it. But uh, yeah, that moment I'll, I'll call it a win just purely because that was a lot of fun. I think the ending got botched. I think something was supposed to happen with uh, the uh, little scooter, the rascal or whatever. No, something with the email on his, like the oh, email, watch. My email didn't work. Yeah. How crazy it is that he has email on his watch and right, now right. it's an actual thing. Right. So I think something happened. He said it didn't work. And there's like a pause. And then Will Ferrell kind of makes the audible. Why don't you guys go ahead and I'll catch up behind you. And uh, he just runs the scooter, the scooter into the fountain. I think that was not 
supposed to happen. I think the, there was an actual other ending that didn't happen. Oh, could be, could be. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll never know exactly how that was meant <laughs> to play out, but, uh, yeah, there was definitely something kind of unsatisfying about how it came to a conclusion. I wasn't sure what they were yeah. reaching for there, but regardless, I mean, this is not the high watermark for the show. So let's uh, push forward here. Yes. Let's talk musical performances. Destiny's child performs survivor. And for their second song, emotion It was amazing. I thought she'd be lip syncing based on her voice in the Gemini's twin sketch. Right. But she's obviously singing very impressive. Survivor was amazing. I mean, the energy and the radiance that she puts out there. And then also, you know, in emotion, it was, I mean, I love a good cover. I love a good cover song. And then doing that BJ song was just so beautiful. And I listened to it like five or six times since <laughs> I forgot they'd done that song. It's not in the uh, one hour repeat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, this was solid, solid end to end. This is destiny's child at sort of the height of their power as a girl group. Obviously Beyonce ascends further in her post destiny's child days, but, uh, this was definitely when they were the talk of the town, they were it for pop music. Um, and these are, yeah, a couple of their biggest hits, uh, performed very capably. I'm always impressed when the dancing is so high energy that you shouldn't be able to catch your breath in time to hit the notes that they're able to hit, but yeah, it was all solid. They're just really poised, really on top of it. So, uh, nothing bad to say about destiny's child. Yeah. Great, great performances. Yep. Let's look at weekend update for their lead in Jimmy Fallon, brutally butchers and Alec Trebek joke. Mm. What do we make of this? Again, we've, we've already kind of commented on how this was a simpler time for weekend update and the world just maybe wasn't quite as crazy as it is now. Um, how are we feeling about what Tina and Jimmy were bringing this week? It was very lopsided. I think Tina hit on all but one of hers and mm-hmm. Jimmy missed on all but one of his. Yeah. Yeah. I think she was on point, uh, which Jimmy had kept up. <laughs> Even that final joke, the Shaq tearing Cindy Crawford to half. <laughs> very rarely they end on a joke these days. It's usually they end on a desk piece, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that was a really good joke to land on. Like, very rarely do you get to do that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. The reason why I wanted to make a point of jimmy fallon brutally butchering the alex trebek joke is because i think that that really just sums up what he was bringing that week and like you said tina fey solid she yeah she was very competent and some solid material in there as innocent as it all seems by today's standard there's nothing biting or hard-hitting they didn't really go down any deep paths with you know political commentary or anything it is definitely not our modern weekend update but i had a lot of fun with it me too so what do we think of Tracy Morgan stopping by to let us know that it is time for a black James Bond? Lamont Bond. <laughs> Lamont Bond. <laughs> I love this. And this is um, one of the things that um, I remember from watching this episode was Jordan Peele giggling, loving <laughs> Lamont Bond. I mean, I, he loved that sketch so much, especially when he's showing, he's showing Jimmy the Pen. Yes. Pen works. Dang, 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 dang. Uh, that, I mean, that memory of Jordan laughing at that and really uh, to think that they're working together now is insane to me. Yeah. No, this was really solid. Um, he plays on the obvious stereotypes like, I'm not jumping on no plane. I'm yeah. not swimming. Like, Lamont Bond does not swim. Yeah. This feels like pretty solid Tracy stuff. This is yeah. exactly what I would expect from a desk piece from Tracy. So it's nice that we kind of have such a well-rounded episode that highlights so much of the era's best kind of material from these cast members. And he looks great. Yeah. Tracy looks great. He's thin. He's in shape. Yeah. When he got on the show, like when he yeah. was originally coming up and auditioned, he was in 
pretty rough shape. Yeah. And it seems like he managed to like clean up and get on top of himself, yeah. <laughs> you know, early on in his SNL run. And obviously, you know, the, he's had some setbacks, you know, sure. health, health wise, there's been a lot contributing to it, but yeah, it, it was refreshing to see how just energized and coherent, yeah. you know, he was with all of this. So, uh, I enjoyed this. It was a smart observation, well-delivered by Tracy Morgan. So yeah. this is good. Three pointer for sure. Yep. Overall, I thought weekend update was a solid outing. Uh, Jimmy Fallon being the weakest link. Yeah, I agree. Goodbye. <laughs> Back half of the show, we get a live sketch. Kurt observes some disturbing behavior from Mr. Tarkanian during his job interview. This is my favorite sketch of all time. Sure. I can't believe how edgy it is and how <laughs> insanely like wrong it is by today's standards, but it still makes me laugh the way it builds going back and forth between straight and absurd. Right, right. Uh, is just, it's the straight is so straight. The absurd is so absurd. Mm-hmm. And the way they nail the office culture, it's, mm-hmm. there's so many things, there's so many parts of it I want to unpack. Well, we'll definitely get there. Um, I thought it was pretty good. I thought Will Ferrell's performance in particular, obviously it's carrying the sketch, but I thought that he had a lot of good beats that really landed. And I think maybe had more to do with just his comedic sensibilities than maybe what was on the page. In particular, there was a little moment right after he goes over and accosts Tina Fey and slaps her in the face. He jumps back into sort of like calm collected mode. And he does this little like trot where he's kind of like pretend punching the air as he bounces back towards uh, Pierce Brosnan's character. Hey, yeah. Hey, buddy. Like, you know, it's it's all good. We're all we're all cool here. Uh, I love that moment, too. It's so amazing. It is so amazing how he can go from that to that. Yeah, and has this, the wherewithal just to throw that little, <laughs> hey, exactly there. that kind of stuff that he hits just so perfectly. That's what takes what was already a great sketch on paper, but I just really think brings it to life. So I wanted to draw attention to that. I also wanted to draw attention to the fact that somehow Will Ferrell managed to figure out the exact optimal number of Trident stabs for maximum funny. Yeah. Right. Like you could drive that into the ground till the audience is groaning or you could come up short and it's just a little jarring and dark and violent but when you sustain it to the exact right degree Uh, it's perfect and it's funny and that's somehow what he managed to do in the moment there so high marks for will ferrell's performance of this but everyone too so let me uh step out here and uh let you jump back in and unpack you know some of what you thought was exceptional about this guy yeah okay so there's so much uh we'll start with the I'll start with the small negative that it is, you know, it's very misogynistic. Sure. It's very racist. You know, it's uh, the second time in this episode that Will Ferrell calls Dratch a bitch. It's the <laughs> second attack on Chris Kattan's masculinity. You know, he's, he's, he tells Jerry Minor, you crazy black man, I'm going to make you drink your piss. It's, it, he slaps Tina Fey in the face. There's so much wrong with the sketch, you know what I mean? On a, a cultural level. Sure. But they come so close to that line so many times and just like put like a pinky toe across it and, and dart back. <laughs> and that's what I love about the sketch so much is how far they can take it and not make you hate Will Ferrell yeah. at the same time. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm this close to raping you. There's so much ridiculousness to the scene. And then, yeah, when Parnell comes in with a net and a trident, he goes, Will Ferrell's like, ah, I'm a strong man. Anybody in this house take a run at me. And Parnell, like, 
Mr. Targaryen. I'm waiting for you. Austin, I'm Sylvain. Watching that scene for the first time, losing our minds is maybe one of the hardest I think I've ever laughed in when he's... He's been lifting weights all day and doing cocaine all day, and he wants a big piece of you. And then he goes, Scott Jurgensen, I love it. I'm actually <laughs> going to murder you. Two punches, 32 trident stabs, and they get the back of the visual joke, mm-hmm. which is the back of him. And it's just a trident spear between his legs. It's so good. And he comes around, there's blood spattered all over his face, and he plays it off. You know what I mean? Yep, yep. And for him, for him to t- do all that ridiculousness, Parnell especially, and Farrell taking it, Larry goes, and comes back and sits down and goes, well, that's a shame. That article you wrote for Continental about Peter Falk's favorite restaurant in San Francisco <laughs> really turns some heads around here. And how we can just like go from that to that in the course of about five seconds yep. is phenomenal and what an amazing sketch should be. Yep. Is to find that game, heighten that game incrementally so you have room to heighten to the point of like all those baby steps from – Dratch to Catan to Fade to Jerry Minor, all the way up to how they got there was it's just classic sketch writing. And I I love it. I love yeah. it. I love it to pieces. And as wrong as it is, it will never not make me laugh. <laughs> Very good. Uh yeah, I love it. You you said it all. That's perfect. Oh God. I wish I just I, I honestly I could do the full hour <laughs> on this one sketch. Well, let's uh let's show a little <laughs> restraint. I think it's obvious sure. that we love this sketch and as wrong as it is by our, our current cultural sensibilities, I would strongly encourage people to go out and watch it regardless. He killed a man of the tribe <laughs> one of his own employees. All right. Ugh. Moving on. We get another live sketch NBC special presentation of the West wing episode written by Aaron Sorkin while high on mushrooms. Eh, it was okay. It was, sounds like a news story that got turned into an idea. Maybe a beat or two too long, mm-hmm. like, like a shroom trip. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I could have done without it, but it was charming. It took a long way to get to that Catan thing at the end. We saw the president's face melting. Yes. Um, but that was kind of the funniest part for me right there. I think that's fair. This was moderately amusing. I think if people have watched the West wing and can connect with the actual characters that they're spoofing, maybe there's a little bit more there, but overall, you know, some fun intercuts of bizarre stock footage to kind of keep things kind of amusing, but overall, yeah, I was pretty mad on this. Take it or leave it. This one did not wow me. Um, I think it's fun to see them do the green screen, trying to walk through these like pre-taped hallways. Like there's something kind of goofy and how, lo-fi the whole thing yeah. was but yeah not enough for me to ever really care about seeing the sketch again and the west wing impressions weren't all that good either true yeah fallon was trying to do uh bradley whitford but he didn't really take it i yeah. think as far as he had to to make that funny um but i mean we could pick it apart there was just a lot of pieces here that ultimately just boil down to the cliches of what people describe a drug trip being and i just you know didn't find that overly we've seen it before hilarious. yeah we've seen it before in better ways so yeah this to me was very much take it or leave it yeah all right moving on we get an snl digital short but not the sort of short that we're used to this is a short by adam mckay five finger discount molly shannon explains the hot rush of shoplifting dogs <laughs> i like this this is the first digital short i believe adam mckay started these it's very reminiscent of the kind of the old Albert Brooks, Gary Weiss films from the original run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, a different tone than we're used to with these kind of shorts, but I really enjoyed the comedy, but the more I watch it, the more I like it. 
And I also have a very interesting connection to it. The third guy that's not Melly Shannon and not Adam McKay is Pat McCartney in that sketch, the uh, owner of the pet store. Pat McCartney was in a Second City touring company with Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. It was the first Second City show I ever saw in 96. Okay. And it kind of made me really want to go and kind of change my life and move to Second City. All right. His performance in that particularly, he did an improv game that kind of like blew me away uh, and really made me want to like really pursue this full time. And then to see him pop up in the sketch this many years later, I'd forgotten he was in it. But as soon as I saw him, I recognized him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really fascinating to see that kind of connection that uh, Adam McKay would use this guy that's never been a sign alive and just used to be a, an old Second City actor. Kind of like, yeah, I want to make a short film with you. It's really inspiring. Yeah, it's kind of neat when you watch vintage SNL, how much um, other comedy luminaries that weren't necessarily associated with SNL pop up just in the background. Yeah. You don't know it at the time because maybe they're a writer on the show or maybe they're just a friend of the show or in the scene. And so someone pulls them in. Um, You see a lot of that, but because this is earlier in their career and you don't necessarily know who those people are yet, it's not until you watch them years later that you're like, wait, what? Who? Yeah. And you, you start to put the pieces together and it becomes obvious that, yeah, these people all piled around or they were in a comedy troupe or they were all at UCB or whatever it was. Exactly. You start to see that there's a much bigger sphere of uh, comedians that kind of pools, you know, their talents into the show. And we don't always recognize it until, you know, years down the road. I also like seeing Adam McKay and Molly Shen kind of come back. Molly mm-hmm. Molly's on her way out, right? At that point. I don't think she was in the cast anymore. She had left a couple of weeks ago. I think she left mid season. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh Adam McKay had certainly had uh had left the previous season, so it's kind of see them coming back and still being part of the family. I wonder if this was something that was shelved from earlier in the season or the previous season, because it doesn't really have the host or anyone else in it that right. would have disqualified it from being shown later. Well, that's why I think it replaced the Smigel cartoon. Huh. Yeah. So maybe the Smigel cartoon just didn't play, so it wasn't a timing issue. That could be it. Yeah. Who knows? Um, but for what it was, this was fun. It was like you said, uh, a little bit more character than joke heavy. Um, you're enjoying the amusement of the consternation on, uh, the shopkeeper's face as he's trying to come to terms with the fact that of all the industries that could be pilfered, his little, you know, pet shop is targeted. There's something amusing about that. And all the characters were kind of well-realized. Molly Shannon's very good at being sassy and just bringing a lot of feist to everything that she does. So I enjoyed some of her work. I love when she plays against type when she's 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 just a sweet person in real life and to watch her. (laughs) She likes to play Molly Shannon's version of who a dirty person is. It's so funny to me. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of good stuff on display here. I don't consider it the high watermark of the night, but that might just be because there's a lot of other fun stuff surrounding it. But for what it was, it was amusing. I'll call it a win. Yeah. I liked it. Uh, I like the tone. It's kind of really nice tone compared to some of the absurd realities of the lonely Island digital shorts, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Moving on. We get a live sketch, a history channel documentary recounts the comedically racist operation market garden. I get angry at this sketch because this is the one that they put in the hour long repeat instead of the other two that I love. Okay. But watching it again this time, I found what I do like about it. And that is the inherent game mm-hmm. of the scene is it's such an easy game to play. You take the genre of a history channel documentary, first person story, you had character, you had makeup and costumes, and then you just tell a truly tasteless joke <laughs> yep. from the truly tasteless joke book verbatim with earnestness <laughs> yes. in first or third person. You got to really feel those emotions that, that really happen to you and then tag it with a tragic work cliche. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> yep. Every single time, and it just do do It's such an easy game to play. The terribleness, of course, are the jokes themselves that are. <laughs> you know, I when I was ten or eleven years old, I would memorize every single one of those joke books. Sure. I had dozens of volumes of them, and I thought they were hysterical. And hearing those jokes now, it is shockingly abhorrent <laughs> that any any of those jokes are terrible terrible and it just i can't believe they put that on the air instead of mr tarkanian or frankie DeRosa's show are you telling me that mr tarkanian didn't make the one hour vintage cut nor does frankie DeRosa fun time hour well i know that doesn't because it has a musical cue it has uh, lenny kravitz in it so they can't use that that's true but yeah they use the history channel sketch instead okay Oh, it crazy me crazy to no end. Yeah. See, that's a, I would consider that a, a bad call too. I wonder, wonder what the rationale was for that. Um, I like this. It works because they're not winking, you know, they're telling the jokes, yeah. but it is in the context of them recounting a, you know, deeply personal firsthand account of war. So you've got what should be very serious and somber in tone mashed up with the, like you said, the most juvenile <laughs> of schoolyard humor. Uh, I find that charming. Maybe I'm just, you know, emotionally stunted and I still have the comic sensibilities of a 10 year old, but I eat this up as inappropriate as, as it is. I love that collision. So it's the sad, nostalgic emotion that they all like really convey when they're telling the joke, like it it pain. The story is hard to tell. (laughs) Exactly. That's what sells the sketch. Yep. That pretty much sums it up. Let's keep going here for our 10 to one. We get Frankie DeRosa's fun hour. It's Las Vegas's only floor show for kids. It's a glitzy variety review, fully licensed, accredited daycare facility. <laughs> yes, that is right out of the, the sketch. Um, so we, we get a very clear picture of what we're about to see, right? We understand what the joke is going into it. Yeah. Were they able to sustain it? That's my big question on this. Yes. Okay. I love the sketch. I love the sketch. It's my <laughs> second favorite sketch of the episode. It'd be my first if uh, Mr. Tarkanian wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, Here's why. I wish that this had been a recurring thing for everyone involved, a recurring mm-hmm. sketch. I wish we'd come back to Frankie DeRosa a couple more times during Horatio's run. Because for me, it is a very creative and very specific world that they created, and they never get to visit sure. ever again. You know what I mean? I love watching kids and animals acting like adults. That's, my fa- <laughs> that's one of my favorite funny things ever. And for me, this is kind of the vibe for me felt like you know the close of a second city first act. Okay. Uh, this this felt like sending sending us into intermission with this is kind of what Horatio was like live. This is what a Horatio sketch, a Second City sketch was. Okay. Definitely with Jerry Minor right next to him because they were a, definitely a comedy team at Second City together. They did so many amazing things together there. So getting that little interplay together was wonderful for me. Um, it really felt like that. If you ever wanted, you know, what they're doing with Horatio and Jerry, this is the team up that never got to happen. You know okay. what I mean? Because they got rid of Jerry after this year. Um, but this gives you kind of a glimpse of what their chemistry was like. All right. Yeah. It would have been neat to see maybe what that would have blossomed into as they kind of got their footing at the show. America was robbed. But they <laughs> never got to really meet the comedy team of ratio and Jerry minor. Okay. And then, you know, the Don Francisco, <laughs> I drank a fifth of apple juice. It was so funny. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love that character. Tatiana, the balloon animal stripper from Tina Fey. <laughs> so much guts to get that nasty in front of kids. And then she insists on a tip. She's such a brave performer mm-hmm. that she can do that and nail it with the baby voice. She goes, I dance Wednesday nights through Sunday brunch at Titillations and Henderson. <laughs> Tell your dads. <laughs> that is just classic Tina. 
And then Maya as Rodolfo de la Cruz, the mm-hmm. snack time dance. Amazing. Yep. Amazing. I can't believe we never have to see that character again in any capacity. It's like all these characters are one-offs for no reason. I would love to come visit this world again. Yeah. Yeah. And then my favorite part of this scene is at the end when Horatio goes, simply the best. That simply the best literally became a catchphrase for us at Boom Chicago. Okay. Over and over. We would just say that about anything that was not the best. <laughs> and I had forgotten that. I don't think until I watched that the other night that that was actually a thing that had carried on across the pond. Well, it sounds like you like managed to pull a lot of satisfaction out of a 10 to one that totally. I think a lot of people would be too quick to write off as pretty lackluster oh, with, without thinking sure. as much about the amount of performance that, that had to go into it from all players. Um, it does move a little slow. So I understand why it's a bit challenging. There's a lot of setup. There's a lot of back and forth from Horatio and Jerry minor, like between introducing the acts, like yep. it is a pretty drawn out sketch. And I think that's probably what hurt it for an SNL audience. For sure. It's definitely a second city yeah. sketch. On it's stage. Live on stage, second yeah. city. Let's slow it down and let's give them a couple of musical numbers towards the end and then like send them into intermission talking about something bizarre. Yeah. It's funny that you say that, that it would have fit really well into a uh, second city review. Cause that was kind of my feeling too, was that this felt like it belonged on a stage because the pacing would work much better with a live audience that is already moving at that speed. Yeah. So that's the one thing that I think is probably why maybe it gets overlooked or doesn't get as much love as it should get. I enjoyed it for a lot of the same reasons as you, but the one thing that I kind of took away and made a note of is Tina Fey always makes a point of saying, you know, when she was at SNL, she kind of kept her head down. She was at the weekend update desk, but she didn't really do sketches. You know, she was happy to be a little bit more behind the scenes, even though she was a cast member for that, you know, whole run that she was on weekend update. But here you get something that really demonstrates her prowess. And a lot of people maybe don't appreciate that because she's, she's very modest. Even like when she was doing 30 rock, if you listen to her in interviews or anything, she's always talking about how like Alex, a real actor, and he just understands how to make love to the camera. And she's just kind of fumbling her way through it. And she's kind of like out of her depth when it comes to being front and center or performing. But if you know her history in Chicago, and if you see things like this, you realize, no, no, that, that was a role, a character that very few people could pull off, not just knowing how to do a balloon animal period, which is kind of remarkable. But like you said, there's some fearlessness there because you are making yourself into a, a character that, you know, they're a little exposed and they're, they're just, there, there's nothing redeeming about it. So there's, there's some element to that, that I don't know if, all performers would want to take on a character like that. But then beyond that, to just come out with fury and kind of like own the dance portion of it, know you're blocking, get in front of the kid, do the balloon animal with perfect timing along with your lines, get that like between your legs and serve to him. But first, like there's just so much going on there that could have fallen apart so easily. And she just dominated that role. Yeah. And so if it was another player where you're used to seeing that week over week from them on the show, you'd be like, yeah, that's just another good performance from a really good performer. Yeah. Molly Shannon would have probably been doing that. Exactly. Any other week. But, you know, Tina takes it and just nails it so well. That's the thing. When you see Tina Fey do it, you say, wait a minute. If you can pull off something like that, why are you always downplaying, (laughs) you know, your performance abilities? Um So that's kind of the one thing that really stood out was this is a really nice uh, indication of where some of her talents lie that people don't see as much of. No, I I agree. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that, that I think is, if nothing else, this sketch should live on because it is such a great demonstration of, of that in particular. But for all the reasons that you said, there's a whole lot going on here that probably is underappreciated just because it's a fairly drawn out and long 10 to one sketch, which is, we got to remember is airing at like, you know, 10 to one. So most of the audience has already checked out or they're half asleep or they're just not feeling fun anymore. So this had a lot working against it, but it definitely has more to offer than I think people realize. This is a super underrated 10 to one sketch. And that is our episode rundown. Let's talk moment of the night. Moment of the night, I think everybody can agree, is 32 Trident Stabs and Chris <laughs> Parnell. I think, honestly, moment of the night for me is Chris Parnell running in and his yes. line that he's been, <laughs> he's been working on doing cocaine all day. He's carrying a, a fishing net and a trident. I don't know what where he got it, why he decided to bring that, how he's, has he been training with those weapons? I don't know what he's planning on. And then like two punches and he's down. <laughs> so for me... Parnell in that scene is everything I love about Chris Parnell. Mm-hmm. Very good. I uh, I can't fault you for coming up with that. That definitely made that sketch. That sketch was already great, but that was the absolute like apex of the comedy in that sketch. And everyone sold it. Yeah. Will Ferrell was selling it. Uh, Chris Parnell, it, just the, um, even just the, the mock fighting between the two of them and then him on the ground, uh, accepting the stabs, you know, all of that was just really well done. So at a technical level, great. It was just hilarious to watch. And yes, the exact right number of Trident stabs to make that exceptionally <laughs> funny. It was all there. It was all there. They're even making some like planet of the apes noises when they're yeah. fighting too. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were all having a lot of fun with this sketch and it, it's, it's definitely coming through. What about you? That was definitely up there for me, but I'm going to give it to uh, Tina Fey coming out and doing a balloon animal for mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a very, I'm sure awkward feeling <laughs> young actor. Uh, I just, I think that's a really fun character to take a run at. And I think she did an exceptional job with it. And it's just bizarre that she knows how to do balloon animals and could bring that to this particular sketch and just, you know, make it work. So, uh, I love Tina Fey. I don't think we see enough of the fearless type of performances from her, but this is an indication that she definitely had that, you know, uh, in her repertoire. So I'm going to give it to that. Great. Cool. Best sketch. Oh, well, (laughs) bad boss. Bad Boss is my favorite sketch of all time. And Frankie DeRosa comes close, but Bad Boss is the best sketch Shine Live has ever done in my heart. Okay. All right. I'm going to agree with you on this one. It was too much fun because it's such a uh, pendulum, you know, mm-hmm. of excitement that kind of goes back and forth on it. It's hard not to stay riveted and connected to the sketch. And I just, I loved it. I, at the end of it, I'm, I'm just like bewildered at the amount of like energy and fury that was kind of <laughs> pouring out of the screen with that sketch. It's also amazingly outdated already. Like even sure. like nine months later, you couldn't do any of that humor anymore. And so it's like this perfect time capsule of toxic masculinity yeah. where toxic masculinity was still a thing uh, in comedy sketches. Yeah. See now in our modern era, you can comment on it, but the person has to be the villain and they kind of have to lose at the end of the piece or else people won't buy into it. Yeah. No, this guy gets to go on doing this to his employees. Exactly. In our modern era, there has to be condemnation baked in, which personally I don't feel is as funny. Like, even though I understand, you know, why people are thinking in that, you know, in those kind of terms, I 
enjoy being able to jump back in time and see another run at it where no, it's purely a comment on the type of bosses that actually exist and go unchecked Mm -hmm. to be able to comment on that without, you know, society needing to like seep in and sort of water that down. I think it just made for a more fun sketch. Personally, I just like the picture they painted here. Yeah, me too. Yep. MVP. I have four and I can't decide. I got Horatio. I got Maya. I got Tina and I got Beyonce. <laughs> sure. And I, I'm having a hard time. I'm going to have to go Horatio. I'm going to have to go Horatio. I think his Hey, Come On in The Weakest Link. <laughs> and I think his performance in the Jeffrey sketch yeah. uh, really elevated that. And then, of course, Frankie DeRose of On Time Hour that came out. That's certainly Horatio's brain uh, being poured out onto a stage. Um, so I think the things that he was in, he elevated. Yeah. I'm going to agree with you. I was on the fence because there's a part of me that just wants to give it to Tina Fey because I love Tina Fey. And she, you know, she's the head writer at this time yeah. too. So I'm sure she had a hand in bad yeah. boss. I'm sure she had a hand in Frankie DeRosa. Her weekend update stuff was phenomenal, but right. There's a lot of her baked into the show. I'm sure. For sure. And like you said, her weekend update material was solid. So an argument could be made, but I don't think it's a more compelling argument than the one that you just made for her ratio. He was taking material that was going to be lackluster and he was bringing some extra life to it. Uh, And he, he did it adeptly. You know, you don't even necessarily realize that that wasn't on the page, that there's more there that he's doing to, to ramp up the energy and give you a little bit more to grin at than maybe the sketch would have (laughs) been capable of uh, otherwise. So he's kind of like the quarterback who makes the hail Mary a couple times in this episode. So I respect that. And like you said, that final sketch, which is underrated, I think it had some strong characters across the board, and he was certainly one of them. I would still say that Tina Fey gave the more daring performance in it, but it was a good showcase of what Horatio can do. And this was a fairly Horatio heavy show. So I can I can get behind that. I'm gonna I'm gonna side with you on this one. Yay. Shout out to Raj. <laughs> Very good. The big question on a scale of classic, great, decent. Weak or train wreck? How would you rate this episode? This is a classic sure. to me. I'm going to watch this episode every time it's on. Uh, and I will watch Bad Boss maybe more a dozen more times in my lifetime. And <laughs> now that I remember Frankie DeRose's a fun time hour, I'll be watching that a bunch too. I really hadn't seen that in like 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's really any controversy here. This is a bona fide classic. I love how well-rounded it is. And how much you see of all the players, even someone like Rachel Dratch, who sometimes, you know, she maybe wasn't stealing the scenes as much as Maya Rudolph or something in later seasons. She's the weakest link lead. Uh, You know, she had a a few good moments. Um, But even even her work in the uh, video, the Destiny's Child video, the the little hunchback. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's that's perfect. Rachel, even though she's a featured (laughs) player, she has 10 years at that point of visual and physical comedy experience on the Second City main stage. So she's nailing even that small of a part. Yeah. So I just love that this alludes to some of her greatness. I love that Tracy Morgan got a moment to do what Tracy Morgan does best. We saw, you know, Tina Fey doing classic Tina Fey weekend update setups. So there was just a lot across the board. Daryl Hammond, Sean Connery. There you go. Yeah. This makes it just a really good time capsule of that cast in that era and what they were bringing. So yeah, there's something special about that. Yeah, definitely something classic. All right. All right. So uh, that's all I got. You got anything else to say about this episode? Uh, no, uh, I, I love it. I, I a lot of 
love in my heart for this episode and takes me back to a time that uh, was really one of the coolest years of my life. Yeah. Working and doing the same thing. You know, I put my Boom Chicago cast against any Second City, any Saturday Night Live cast. <laughs> uh, and just remembering that time of working, doing what they were doing, but just live. Sure. Uh, was, uh, was a really fun time. And this, this episode takes me right back there. Good. I'm glad that it has a special place in your heart because it kind of came through, you know, in the conversation, it's obvious that this one really connected with you. It was a lot of fun breaking it down. Yeah. Um, before we sign off though, remind everyone what you got cooking with your festival and uh, where they can find out some more information about it. Yeah. So check out Cold Town Theater at coldtowntheater.com, uh, comedy in Austin, seven nights a week, improv sketch and stand up, and classes. And then uh, Labor Day weekend, uh, we do Out of Bounds Comedy Festival, uh, seven days of improv sketch and stand up. Uh, across seven stages uh badges and individual tickets are on sale now and uh come memorial day weekend come to austin check out uh austin sketch fest excellent well dave buckman i am very glad that we were able to reconnect hopefully this episode actually sees the light of day and uh <laughs> with that said uh it was a pleasure having you on i can't wait to reconnect so that we can have a little side conversation about your path to comedy uh coming up through chicago and then what you did with boom chicago heading over to amsterdam there's a, a lot of uh, great anecdotes that I, i'm sure you yeah. can relate about that time period um and I can't wait to put that out as a little bonus cast for our audience. That's hopefully going to drop maybe a little bit later in the summer, early fall before season 44 of SNL pops up. But until then, uh, enjoy the rest of your summer. I hope your festival is a smashing success. Uh, thank you very much and good luck to you. And uh, I guess I'll be talking to you when we get some new cast members. huh? Absolutely. All right. That's a cast. Thanks to my guest, Dave Buckman. You can connect with Dave on Twitter at Dave Buckman. And thanks as well to our most generous patrons, Sam Bowers, Jonathan Jordan, and Aaron and Trader. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get early ad-free access to each new podcast episode, as well as many other exclusive member rewards. You can learn more about all the ways you can support the cast at snlafterparty.fm. We'll be back soon for a fun SNL podcast crossover episode with Andrew Dick of the considerably less popular That Week in SNL podcast. Until then, this has been episode number 52 of the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. That's it, folks. Thanks to Destiny's Child, Julia You done? Why don't you go back to where you usually shop? You know, where they serve little samples of cheese with toothpicks? Mm -hmm. Some place where you can get your entire wardrobe, a rifle, and a portable basketball hoop all in the same aisle. <laughs> Follow the blue flashing light. Oh, really? For your informacy, Kmart is for losers. I get all my stuff at Target. <laughs> See ya! Fuckers! Wouldn't want to be ya!